0: and then let's read the, the answers together for Lord's Day 52 on page 63 in the back of our blue Psalter hymnal. Matthew 6, page 1504, if you're using the Pew Bible. Listen then to God's holy word this evening once again, found in the gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. And then our catechism questions and answers for tonight. Page 63. We'll be looking mainly at question and answer 127, but let's uh, read and respond, reading the answers together to all three. And what does the sixth request mean? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil means. By ourselves, we are too weak to hold our own, even for a moment. And our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, never stop attacking us. And so, Lord, uphold us and make us strong with the strength of your Holy Spirit, so that we may not go down to defeat in this spiritual struggle, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. What does your conclusion to this prayer mean? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever means. We have made all these requests of you because as our all-powerful king, you not only want to, but are able to give us all that is good. And because your holy name and not we ourselves should receive all the praise forever. What does that little word, amen, express? Amen Amen means, this is sure to be. It is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. People of God, let's seek the blessing of God in His Word together as we consider His Word this evening. Been thinking about what prayer is as we come to the end, the last Lord's Day in the Heidelberg Catechism. We've defined prayer this way. We have said, Prayer is communication with God, whereby we bring Him our genuine adoration, confession thanksgiving and supplication through our mediator Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit all to the glory of God the Father prayer is extremely important it is our communication with God but we have been careful to say that it's not as if you're sitting down at a table and having coffee with someone it's not this dialogue of two-way communication We talk to God and we communicate with him, uh, but it's not as if he freely, audibly talks to us in prayer. But that does not mean that there is no benefit for us in prayer. Uh, God blesses us and nourishes our soul as we draw near to him through prayer we enjoy the blessings of greater and closer fellowship with God. We have our fellowship renewed with God as we heard last week. The light of our countenance, the light of God's countenance can be turned back towards us as we seek his mercy and his forgiveness and through all of those things we are nourished. So it's it's extremely important to the Christian life and as we see tonight It's extremely important for the Christian life because it helps us in the battle in which we are engaged. The the battle which we fight, which is a battle against sin and temptation. A battle that goes from your first day in Christ until the day that you leave this earth. Tonight's petition that we're considering mainly... Is that last petition, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. And it probably is true that what Jesus means by this uh, at the end is the evil one. That is uh, Satan, about whom we will uh, speak in just a few moments. First, some preliminary uh, observations, thoughts, before we dive in to consider this petition by itself. We know that we are praying to the Father... And and that's been important to remind ourselves of each and every week, because uh, as we move through these petitions and and understand what they are in detail, it's important to understand that Jesus wanted the children of God to pray this prayer. And that's important for us to remember, because as we've just mentioned, it's, it's only the true children of God who are going to be engaged in a struggle and a battle against sin and temptation. For anyone who is not alive in Christ, there is no battle. There is no struggle. Those who are not in Christ are enslaved to sin. Those who are not in Christ have not experienced the transforming power that gives the people of God victory over sin or at least engagement in the battle itself. So we are praying to our Father, and this is a prayer to be prayed by the children of God. This particular petition, at the end of the prayer here, highlights the need to be an active Christian, a doing Christian, a Christian who has a faith that is complemented by a life that is seeking to glorify God. If we pray this prayer and this petition of the prayer... Without any intention to be active in our faith, we are mocking God, aren't we? Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. If there's no intention to be active, then we are mocking God. But if we attempt to have an active Christian life without prayer, then we not only mock God and say that we can do it ourselves, but we fool ourselves because we know that we cannot do anything spiritual in and of ourselves. One final set of preliminary observations. Why should we pray against temptation? Why should we pray against falling into temptation and sin? Very simply because falling into temptation and falling into sin creates both of the major problems of our spiritual lives as Christians. If you really take a look at all of the spiritual problems that we can have as Christians, they really come from one of two sources, and both of those stem from falling into sin and temptation, and they are this. First, falling into sin and temptation robs the people of God, the children of God, of power and vitality in obedience. It can be one of the spiritual problems that you have. You're seeking spiritual counsel or you're searching your soul and you're saying to yourself, I don't have spiritual peace. I know that things aren't right because there is no vitality in the way that I'm seeking to live out my Christian life. There is no power and vitality in my obedience. That is the first source of the problem. The second source from which all of our spiritual problems as Christians Uh, stem is that falling into sin and temptation can steal our comfort and consolation and assurance. So you have two sources, right? Either there's a problem with power and vitality of obedience or there is a problem with assurance. Really all of the spiritual problems we can experience as Christians come from one of those two places, I don't know whether or not I'm a child of God. I, I, I don't have any assurance. Well, that comes from uh, sin getting into our lives and falling into temptation. I have no power of vitality unto obedience. Well, that too comes from the presence of sin in our lives. John Owen, wonderful Puritan theologian, famously said, very famously, perhaps well, one of the most famous Um, sayings out of the time of the Reformation and afterwards, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that highlights the need for us to be engaged in this battle. The Reformed Confessions even call it a war. Be engaged in this all-out war against sin and temptation. So, the central idea Today, tonight, this evening, central idea, and then sort of three ideas, three parts that will unpack that. That is, uh, what is temptation? Then, how are we tempted? And then, how can this petition help us uh, to engage in the battle against temptation? So, first, uh, what is temptation? Uh, this petition deals with the ongoing struggle against sin in the life of the Christian, as we have mentioned. And what we are asking for in this petition is as follows. We are asking that God would continually be with us, that he would continually abide with us so that he might always be the one who delivers us from temptation all the way to our glorious inheritance in heaven. You see, that's the the rub of tonight's petition, is that it is a battle in which we engage all the way to the very end of life. There will never come a time when we completely eradicate sin from our lives, when we completely uh, vanquish all of those things which would crop up in our lives. This is something that never ends in this age and in this life. The word temptation, in regards to defining it or, or what it is, it really has two different shades of meaning. They're not unrelated, but they are different in some sense. The word for tempt can also mean test, and that has a little bit less of a negative connotation. So first, when when we encounter this word in the New Testament, sometimes it's translated test, sometimes it's translated as tempt. And that, that shade of meaning that is more test, like I said, is not quite as negative, and it just means to prove to prove something you put something to the test in order to prove what it is so we know that god does not tempt us but god does test his people God does test his people. It's important to understand that as we think about temptation because we know that that everything that happens in our lives and in this world comes uh, from the sovereign will of God. And we know that God cannot entice us to sin and yet there are many things that come into our lives where God is testing the genuineness of our faith. And sometimes that can happen even within those things that we would call temptations. We are not tempted by God, and he is always working above. His sovereign purposes are above, for instance, the purposes of our sworn enemies. But God can test. God does not tempt. The second meaning is that. uh, Is that meaning to tempt, to entice to sin. And that seems to be more what Jesus is saying in this petition. Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into that which would entice us. To sin. This is what he teaches his disciples and then us to say. That is what temptation is. It would bring us, it would entice us, put something in front of us uh, that would draw us uh, to falling prey and falling into sin. The catechism reminds us, uh, because of what scripture teaches, that we have three sworn enemies... Three sworn enemies. And it is through these three enemies that we see how we are tempted. The second main idea, how are we tempted? We are tempted through these three sworn enemies. The world, the devil, and the flesh. First, we'll look at the world. What does the catechism mean? What does God's word mean when we speak of the world as our sworn enemy in this battle against sin? Do we mean the people of the world, all of the populations of the world? Do we mean uh, the physical earth, right? There have been little offshoots from Christianity throughout the history of the church that have seen that all material things, all things made up of matter, all things extended in space are evil. And so this, uh, this, this physical earth is an evil thing. Our physical bodies are evil. We need to escape from all of that. But that's not what the Bible teaches and that's not what the Bible means when it says the world is our sworn enemy. When the Bible uses world in this way as our enemy, it means the age to which this world is subject. We talk of scripture in of two ages, this age and the age to come. This age is a present evil age. The age to come is the the age of the fullness of the kingdom of God. And the world, when the Bible speaks of the world in this way, it's speaking of that which is subject to this present and evil age. For instance, we read in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. Again, that doesn't mean don't love all of the people of the world or don't love this earth that God has created. It's all that is subject to this present evil age. John goes on, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world which we see with our eyes, which we take in with our senses— all those things that are subject to the powers of this age, all that is fading away is our enemy because it carries with it a certain appeal that would lure us away from God. There's really concise ideas there in, in that short passage from First John, isn't it? The desires of the flesh, all that appeals to who we are in a, in a sensory manner. The desires of the flesh, the, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the eyes, whatever that might be. That might be, uh, we, we see great wealth, we see great glory and attention, and we seek that kind of attention from other people, and we want adulation, we want praise, we want our name to be known and to be remembered, the pride of possessions, we we look back onto past civilizations and we think how foolish they are to to carve idols out of wood and stone and Yet we see how how imprisoned this world is to the piling up of possessions, the idolatry of piling up our possessions, so the glory and the pleasure that this world offers is our sworn enemy, because what is What is it capable of doing? It's capable of enticing us to replace God with whatever this world would offer. It's our sworn enemy because it has an enticing and an alluring power that would draw us away from our God. The world is our sworn enemy. The Bible also speaks of the devil as our enemy. And once again, as we've said in recent weeks, Uh, The devil is a personal being. He's not just a force. He's not just an idea. He's not a euphemism for things that stand opposed to God. He is a personal being. He is an angel who has fallen. And when he fell, he took a a myriad of of other angels with him. And there is no redemption that is possible for angels. Redemption was, was laid out to humanity. God gave Christ in order to redeem some from humanity. Angels do not have that opportunity. And we know that as Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, as we have seen it recently, uh, what happens to the devil? Because of Jesus, he is cast out of heaven. The devil was in heaven throwing accusations around against the people of God. He was uh, the accuser of the brethren. But because of Jesus, the cross and the resurrection and the victory that has been won right? The, his, his fate has been sealed. We know the end of the story. We know how it's all going to pan out. He has been thrown out of heaven, but that means that he has come to earth. And that means that he can spend all of his time and all of his attention and all of his resources trying to gather others to bring them along with him. He is literally hell-bent on taking all that he can down with him to his eternal condemnation. It's important for us to know the schemes of the devil. Paul says in Ephesians 6, he talks about the wiles of the devil. It's important for us to know how he might try and devour us, as 1 Peter warns. His schemes are not like what you would see in a bad movie when when you see something like people try to personify Uh, The devil, as this uh, horridly ugly creature, or something like that. He disguises himself as an angel of light. That's more often what he will do. He does all that he can to make his work appear righteous, to make what he is doing appear truthful. I mean think of the examples that we have in scripture. What does he do in the garden of Eden? What does he do when he tries to tempt Jesus? He, he uses sometimes these half-truths and he tries to, to bend someone's thinking into a different direction. Think about how perhaps he he may uh, be doing that or maybe has already done that in many parts of our own world here today. The conceptions that people have about right and wrong on some of these more uh, hot-button topics in Western civilization, right? You could take something like assisted suicide or uh, many of these uh, issues that are like that and... People have their minds warped around this idea of what they think is right and they feel self-righteous about it, arguing uh, that it would be just to tell someone that their life is not worth living. We can determine that this image bearer of God no longer has any value because of the circumstances in his or her life. It would be better for us to take that life. The the, the kinds of schemes that he does is trying to make people feel self-righteous about false conceptions of right and wrong. Another thing he may do is uh, make people think that it is impossible that God could condemn anyone. It's impossible. How could God do that? God is supposed to be nice. God is supposed to be generous. There's no way he could condemn anyone anyone as a sinner see his schemes are primarily bound up in giving half truths of scripture so in Ephesians 6 when Paul goes on to talk about the schemes of the devil he prescribes to us the armor of God and you notice how the armor of God centers around knowing fully the truth of the word of God right the shield of faith we need to know what it is that we believe. We need to know what it is in which we are trusting. The breastplate of righteousness. We need to understand not only how we receive Christ's righteousness by faith. But also how God brings about a spirit wrought righteousness in our sanctification. The word of God. is the, the sword of the spirit. Right. You need to know what it is that God says to us. And what he teaches us through his word. When Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, every single answer he gave him was something from the word of God. So just like we see Jesus knowing God's word, so it's important for us to do so as well. And that is how we fight our sworn enemy, the devil. But we also know that uh, the flesh... Our flesh is a sworn enemy. This is what James chapter 1 says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, as we said earlier. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Here we see once again, God does not tempt, although in his sovereignty, testing will come our way. But it is our own flesh which is involved each and every time we give in to temptation. It needs to be our flesh involved with it. See, the world can entice and allure. The devil can do the same, and all the forces of evil can do the same, enticing and alluring. But it needs to resonate with our sinful flesh, our sinful nature. And when desire is conceived, when, it's, when it resonates with our, sinful, uh, with our sinful desires, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when fully conceived, gives birth uh, to death. What does the Bible mean by our flesh? Uh, sometimes in scriptures it means flesh and blood and bones. But that's not what the Bible means when it's talking about flesh in this sense that which uh, that which causes us uh, to sin the bible talks about the part of our being that is still bound by a corrupted sinful nature that part of our sinful nature which endures even beyond uh, our coming To be alive in Christ. Galatians chapter 5 says this The desires of the flesh are against the spirit, the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So, even those who are in Christ, even though they are called new creatures, new creations, they are citizens of the age to come, they still, in some sense, bear the mark of a sinful nature. And so we must be careful to understand what the Bible is saying here. What what are the ways in which we are to understand this? Because we know we have been told that we have been given this great victory in Christ. We know that uh, that we are told that as we are regenerated by the Spirit of God and given life through the gospel of God, we have new life. And that new life gives us a different relationship with our sinful nature. It's important to understand uh, what the Bible teaches In all of these things. See our flesh is no longer master over us in Christ. We are no longer enslaved to the corruption of the flesh. Because we are made alive in the victory over sin which Christ has won. Important to understand all of those things. But at the same time there is a corruption which remains active in our lives. A corruption of sinfulness. It no longer lays a claim on us. And it no longer has authority over us. And most importantly, we now have a power at work within us which is greater than that power of sinfulness. One way to understand this, this is uh, in many ways complex and you can look at it from different perspectives, but one way to understand this is by thinking of our sinful flesh as citizenship in this present evil age. Before Christ, we are enslaved to it. Before Christ, it, ha- it lays claim on us. It has jurisdiction over us. But our life in Christ, we think about that as a citizenship in the age to come. Citizenship in the kingdom of God. So in our present lives in Christ, we are called to live according to the rule of Christ. According to the law of Christ. But what that means is that it's as if we are resident aliens living in a foreign land. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, but we are living in the midst of this present uh, evil age. An example of this, Be, I, I, read, I read a story about um, very powerful and, uh, and rich leaders from Muslim countries that were very stringent on their observation uh, of the Quran. And when these powerful multi-multi-millionaires were at home in their country, uh, they seemed to have very little problem obeying a lot of the laws of their land, you know, regulations on on diet and, and drinking and things like that. But as soon as their private jets took off into the air and they went to travel around to other places in the world, all of a sudden all of that religious observance ceased. See, they were living as a citizen of their country while they're in their country. But when they left their country, they forgot all of that. They live as a citizen of the place wherever they are, not the place that is their home. And the call of scripture is to always live as a citizen Of your home. And your home is the kingdom of God. Your home is the age to come. And that which that part of you which belongs to this present evil age no longer has jurisdiction over you. It no longer lays a claim upon you. Christ lays a claim upon you. And he calls you to live in a certain way. He calls you to live according to his law of perfect obedience and perfect gratitude. And so, our flesh wages war against this this new life that we have in Christ. And it's trying to pull us back into that law which spoke jurisdiction and authority over us before we were given life in Christ. So the call upon us as Christians then, live according to the kingdom of God. Those are our three sworn enemies, the world the devil and our flesh, engaging us in this all-out war, this all-out battle, which we must fight to the finish. So how does this petition help us in temptation? How does this uh, petition help us in temptation? We could think about uh, the disciples who were given the command to pray this prayer, right? Jesus gave this first to the disciples, specifically to the twelve, And he tells them, pray that you would not enter temptation. Pray that you would be delivered. See, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we need to understand the two halves of that prayer together. Uh, To not be led into temptation is to be uh, delivered from evil. But as the disciples prayed that prayer, they struggled and they stumbled all the way to the cross, didn't they? And remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells them, pray that you might not enter temptation. But as we look at them, they they fall asleep, they stumble around, they're failing, they're denying Jesus, but then something miraculous happens. After the cross, after the resurrection, suddenly their lives are wonderful testimonies as to the power of this prayer. Suddenly, after the the, the cross and the resurrection, after the victory of Christ is won, all of a sudden, they are being delivered from evil. They aren't falling into temptation, and the same is true for us. You see, that's the great blessing of being a New Covenant Christian. That's the great blessing of having this, this greater outpouring of the Spirit of God that comes to the people of God through the victory of Jesus Christ when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we see that Christ has won the victory for us and that through his suffering, he was delivered. Through our suffering, we too will be delivered. And so just a few concluding thoughts on how it is that the Spirit of God helps us in this prayer. Because as we see, uh, this is not victory that we earn by ourselves. Uh, we do not come through uh, the, the, the testing of temptation by our own power. It's only by uh, the Spirit of God. So as we pray that God would empower us by his Spirit... Through this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, what the Spirit does is he causes our hearts and our lives to abound in grace and fruits contrary to the flesh. Remember in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh are contrary to the works of the Spirit and vice versa. So when we pray that the Spirit of God would take root in our lives, what happens is when we pray that in faith, the Spirit can cause our hearts and our lives to abound in fruitful works. And if your life is abounding in fruitful works of righteousness, it cannot be abounding in the works of the flesh because they are opposed to each other. By praying that the Spirit of God would lead us not into temptation, but that we would be delivered from evil, the Spirit is the power which can burn up our desires to live in sinfulness. And the Spirit of God can bring the cross of Christ into our hearts by faith and give us communion with Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. That's what the Spirit does. Just a couple of ideas then as we close. Knowing that it is by the power of God, knowing that we pray for the power of God to abide with us and deliver us from temptation, here are some things that we can watch in our own lives. If we would fight against temptation... By the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, give heed to four things in your life. Give heed to your heart, give heed to your eyes, give heed to your ears, and give heed to your tongue. Give heed to your heart. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. From it flow the springs of life. What is the state of your heart. What is it? Desire the glory of God or the pride of life. Take heed of your eyes. Psalm 119, 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Preserve my life according to your will. Take heed of your ears. What is the conversation that we give the time of day? Galatians chapter 5 says that enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, these are the works of the flesh. Do we give them the time? Uh, do we listen to them? Do we heed them? And then finally, give heed to your tongue. Ephesians four twenty nine. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear these are the ways in which we can keep tabs on ourselves and how we are engaging in this battle by the grace of God, by the power of God, and by the power of His Spirit. This is, this is the battle which we must fight from the first day in Christ all the way until the end. This battle uh, will never be won in this age and in this life. And so we must always fight. We must always trust God to lead us, not into temptation, but because of the power and the grace of God found in Christ through the cross that we would be delivered uh, from evil and that we would see the many ways in which he is weeding out sin from our lives day by day. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you and we pray. This prayer which you have instructed us to pray, which opens our eyes to so many of the wonderful realities about prayer. Father, I pray that you would lead us not into temptation. By the power of your Spirit, you would deliver us. We know that your word promises us that with each temptation that comes our way, you provide a way of escape. And so we know even through that, that you never forsake us. Father, and we can trust that because our Savior... Jesus Christ was forsaken for us. We trust in him and we give, uh, we give all of this into your hands. May your words sink down into our hearts. May, re- may we remember it and recall it all throughout the week. In Christ's name, amen.